Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories in coronavirus news, the FDA has approved a new and inexpensive saliva test for COVID-19 that was developed by Yale University and funded in part by the NBA and the NBA Players Association. So far, the test has yielded similar results to other diagnostic tests, and it also avoids a key step that has caused shortages in other tests. For more on this new saliva test, we'll speak to Ed Silverman, senior writer at Stat News. There are a few things that make it worth noting, and it certainly got a lot of attention when the FDA announced the emergency use authorization over the weekend. For one thing, a saliva test is easier to use than the nasal swab, which can pinch the nasal area. People find it annoying at best. And with a saliva test, you can just spit into a tube or a particular container. So that's an advantage right there. And there are a couple of advantages here. Another one is that the turnaround time is between two to three hours to run dozens of samples. And the whole issue with testing is that we need to be able to test as many people as quickly as possible. Because if you have to wait X number of days before you get a test result, you obviously are not going to be able to capture what's happening in real time because people move around, they come into contact with others perhaps, and the information can get out of date. And then they first have to get those results to be able to act on them. So here, the saliva test, it comes back relatively quickly. You can have results ideally, presumably, in the same day. And that allows you to act in it to quarantine yourself so that the transmission rate is mitigated or at least slowed down. And that is the key here. Yeah. And that's what we had been seeing a lot in the past few weeks. There was a lot more demand for tests, but the backlog was so great. People were waiting a week, sometimes two weeks in certain cases to get their test results. And at that point, it's not helping anybody with regards to being able to isolate yourself or even contact tracing efforts. So it's been kind of an ongoing problem to get our hands wrapped around. The other thing about this Yale test, they're saying that it skips a, a step that a lot of the other tests do take, which is extracting the virus's genetic material. And in this case, it continues just to help it move along faster. So basically, the Yale test doesn't use expensive reagents that are used to stabilize samples and extract the virus's genetic material. So instead, the Yale test relies on cheaper reagents and a heating step to separate the virus's genetic material from the rest of the sample. So this might cause the test to be slightly less sensitive or yield a true positive rate, but it makes the test much cheaper than the alternatives that are already being used. I should also add something that The Yale researchers, uh, they're making the test available on what they call an open source protocol, which means that it'll be easier to use different testing components elsewhere so that there'll be much easier access to the method that Yale's providing to certified laboratories. And that will also speed the whole turnaround process. There is another saliva test that's made by Rutgers University, I know that one has been 
had a couple problems with accuracy on this one, and this uh, speaking to the partnership that they did with the NBA and the NBA Players Association. Since they're in the bubble, they're doing constant testing anyways. They were doing regular diagnostic tests of players and staff, and then they were also doing this uh, saliva test by Yale, which is called Saliva Direct, by the way, and they were comparing those two tests. So I think they said almost universally the test came back exactly the same. So with regards to accuracy, they think they've nailed it on that. One other difference, according to the Yale researchers, again, is that the cost of the materials they've used to put their test together is just a few dollars. So on that basis, they're hopeful that the certified labs that turn around and run the samples to get us results won't charge more than $10 per sample. Now, that remains to be seen. You know, where there's money to be made, there's money to be made. In any event, the Rutgers test costs anywhere from 60 to $150 per test. So there's obviously room for savings here that hopefully will make it viable for the entire healthcare system to act quickly and efficiently and ethically, if that matters to people, which hopefully it does. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like it's good news all around. Obviously, we're going through this whole pandemic in real time and more tests are starting to come on board and they're starting to nail down exactly how to get them more accurate and with cheaper reagents and materials needed to do it. So all good news that the Yale one is come on board now. And as you mentioned, since it's open source, I think it might even get better after that. So definitely something to keep an eye on. Ed Silverman, Armalot columnist and senior writer at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. Have a great day and stay safe. Also this week, the Senate Intelligence Committee released its final report on Russian interference in the 2016 election, and it detailed significant contacts between the Trump campaign and people with ties to Russian intelligence. Former campaign manager Paul Manafort was especially singled out as a grave counterintelligence threat. For more on the Senate report, we'll speak to Olivia Beavers, congressional reporter at The Hill. This really builds on our knowledge from other investigations that have since become public, which is the House Intelligence Investigation and the Special Counsel's investigation that was made public last year. Now, some of the main points that really caught our attention for those of us who have been following this closely is just the great detail on how they tie these extensive communications between Russia and members of the Trump campaign. And one of the names that really stood out was Paul Manafort. And Paul Manafort, they said, was in constant communication with someone named Kalimnik. And they went further than the special counsel and described Kalimnik as a Russian intelligence officer. So basically, they were saying that Manafort was willing to share polling data. He was helping with a Russian oligarch's efforts to spread information overseas in different countries. And he was also possibly interacting constantly with this, as they described it, intelligence officer who might have had an involvement in the DNC hack in 2016. So it really kind of drew Manafort and these Russian government-linked individuals much closer than I think we had previously known in other reports. With regards to Paul Manafort, they said because he was so willing to share some of that data that he was a grave counterintelligence threat, although they didn't go as far as saying he actually, quote unquote, colluded with anybody. 
that was never really determined, but just because of his dealing with this guy that they now deemed a Russian intelligence officer, he was a big threat that way. And a lot of what they also talk about is that Russia saw all these vulnerabilities in the Trump transition team. They mm-hmm. saw them as inexperienced, disorganized, unprepared, and they were ready to exploit all of that. That really stood out as well. They were saying, as you just touched on, they basically saw an opportunity that you had all of these inexperienced business officials working on the transition team, and they decided to take advantage of that. And they did that through reaching out to people who didn't have these kind of foreign affairs backgrounds with understanding how Russia works. And it wasn't just Russia. It was other countries, they said, allies and businesses. But basically, you had during the transition, you have a new president coming in and you have all these outsiders rushing to kind of embed themselves to a point where they have access. And that was a point that this report was trying to make was that this is not a thing that is safe for our intelligence purposes. And we should be more careful of that going forward. The FBI did come under a lot of criticism with regards to the very contested Steele dossier. They basically said that the FBI didn't really do a lot of their due diligence in using that. They didn't vet anything before they were trying to get warrants and whatnot because of it. So that was another big one that the president has said for a long time that there was nothing to that Steele dossier, but they said that Christopher Steele himself did a lot of sloppy work on that thing as well. You know, the FBI has come under criticism for how it's handled the Carter Page FISA for using the dossier. And here it kind of lays out that they thought that the FBI had previously had this information sharing relationship with Christopher Steele, who's this former British intelligence officer. And what they said is they relied too heavily on kind of this past relationship that they had had with him. And that led them to take what he gave them much too trustingly. And that led to all of these issues that they didn't actually properly vet the information that they were receiving from him in a fashion that they should have. One of the other things, too, they go back to the 2016 meeting between Trump campaign officials and some Russians in Trump Tower. This is the woman, uh, Natalia Veselnitskaya, and another person there. And basically, they're saying that they also had extensive Russian connections, possibly to Russian intelligence services. But they were really there to share dirt about Hillary but the Trump campaign didn't really know the extensive ties that they had to Russian services. Of course, they were lying the whole time. Mm-hmm. That, that's why you know, none of that really serviced. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. I think there's two sides to that. One is that the report is pointing out they were meeting with someone who had far greater ties to the Russian government. And the other one is something that they described as a counterintelligence threat in itself, which is that you have a presidential campaign that was willing to accept foreign assistance whether or not they received it, they were willing to accept it on a political opponent. And that's been a discussion that has continued to keep on rising as we head into 2020. But what I do also think is interesting is sort of the reactions that we're seeing on Capitol Hill just from this report. The report itself is bipartisan, and you have both the top Democrat and Republicans putting their stamp of approval on it. But outside of that, you have the president and Republicans saying, This is more like vindication that there was no collusion, per se. And Democrats are coming back and saying, well, that's exactly what collusion looks like if you look at what Manafort was doing with Kalimnik. The report did say that there's no doubt there was no collusion, but it was proven time and time again that members of the Trump campaign were in constant contact with 
people who had ties to Russian intelligence services. And, you know, they even named Manafort a grave counterintelligence threat. So these were the kinds of things surrounding it. And nothing rises to the level of Trump except for uh, some things about Roger Stone saying that there was conversations about WikiLeaks and how the leak of that information was going to flow out. But it does really seem to be centered around other Trump campaign officials mostly. So hopefully we can put a cap to all of this now, <laughs> years, years down the road. But I mean, this seems to be the final report on this. And as you mentioned, it's bipartisan, Republican-led committee. And it still mm -hmm. does say that Russia did indeed try to interfere in the elections. I've been covering this ooh, maybe now three years. And so, like, you know, the Russia investigation has been part of my job description for so long. But now I, you know, I think it's an end of an era. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Olivia Beavers, congressional reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. This past week, the Democratic National Convention took place. And this coming week, the Republican convention will be happening as well. And with both of these happening, we are firmly into the general election. But what do the polls show about the state of the presidential race? Joe Biden continues to maintain a lead, but that is narrowing. And while Biden has his supporters, voters are really more united in opposition against President Trump. For more on what all the polls are saying right now, we'll speak to Stephen Shepard, politics editor at Politico. We got a boatload of polling over the past few days leading into the two conventions here. And what it shows is some slight tightening from earlier in the summer when Joe Biden was up routinely around 10 or 12 points in the polls over President Trump. That now averages out to seven or eight points in a number of those polls tightened slightly. One poll tightened a lot more, but that looks like more of an outlier. A couple of polls actually showed Biden's lead widening. Those look a little bit like outliers. Overall, it shows a slightly tighter race. And you're absolutely right about this being the kickoff, really, for the general election. We have the two-party conventions. By the following week, the first absentee ballots in a swing state, North Carolina, go out to voters in the mail the week after the Republican convention. So we're talking about, really, the election as, as we are going to know it in this sort of pandemic era, really being on our doorstep once we get through these conventions. And it's going to be interesting to see, because usually when we have a convention that party gets a bump. And with the Democrats convention being virtual and who knows how exactly how the Republican convention is going to play out, are those bumps going to be comparable? Another thing that we're seeing too is that for Joe Biden, it's not necessarily, hey, we support Joe Biden, we love Joe Biden, there's some of that, but most of his vote is coming in as opposition to President Trump. This is something that I think we've looked at over the course of the past few months where you see a relative enthusiasm gap when you ask people how enthusiastic they are to vote for their candidate. President Trump's supporters, uh, and you see it whether it's in vote parades or on social media, are very enthusiastic about him. His rallies are about him. For Joe Biden, it is more about, for his voters, it seems to be more about kicking out the incumbent president. In an NBC News Wall Street Journal poll out on Sunday, 58% of Biden supporters said their vote was more about opposing Trump. Just 36% said it was about voting for Biden. For Trump voters, 74% said they were voting for Trump because they meant it as a vote for Trump. Only 20% of Trump voters said they meant it more as a vote against Joe Biden. So you have this kind of asymmetry where Joe Biden's voters are enthusiastic about voting. They're just enthusiastic about voting against 
President Trump, not right. necessarily for Joe Biden. And it'll be his challenge over the next couple of months to keep those voters in, in the fold. One point I want to make on convention bounces is Democrats, as, as you may recall, were initially supposed to hold their convention in the middle of July, five weeks ago. The idea was having an earlier convention would give them momentum through the summer to carry through the Olympic Games, which would have been in the early part of this month, would be ending right around now. And that would set their nominee up well, even going into the Republican convention in late August. Obviously, they pushed back, hoping that they could buy some time and still have an in-person convention. When that didn't happen, we're stuck with these back-to-back virtual conventions. And I think that's going to blunt both the virtual nature of the conventions and also the timing. The fact that Republican convention begins just four days after the Democrats conclude will limit what kind of momentum each party, I think, can get out of this four-day infomercial that each party is looking to put on over the next couple of weeks. What kind of bump did the naming of Kamala Harris as the running mate for Joe Biden, what kind of bump did that provide? I know in the first 48 hours, they got $48 million. So the fundraising part of it was kind of there, but polls, what were they saying about it? Well, we've seen only a few polls conducted after Joe Biden named his running mate, and they're pretty consistent with the polls that were conducted right before earlier last week. So I don't know that it changed the race a lot. But what we saw is overall voters telling pollsters that they approve of the choice. Joe Biden made arguably a safe choice choosing an experienced candidate who has exposure on the national stage. Voters got to know her during her presidential campaign in 2019. CBS News, ABC News, Washington Post. CNN, SSRS, all found majorities approve of his choice. So that's not uncommon. Majorities approved of John McCain's choice of Sarah Palin in 2008 in the first few days. Obviously, she didn't wear as well with voters over the closing couple of months of that campaign. (laughs) So it's not unusual for there to be enthusiasm around the pit right after it's made. The challenge for Democrats and for Kamala Harris is to keep that going, her momentum going through the convention this week, and obviously the other key moment for her and for Vice President Mike Pence, their debate in early October. That should be an exciting one. And the last thing I wanted to ask very briefly is this is not just a battle for the presidency. This is also about Congress. And a lot of people are saying that the Senate could be a toss-up. It's possible there. The House will probably remain on the Democratic side, but this is also a very important part of this. It is a very important part of it. And I think you're going to see a little bit of that at the Democratic Convention. I know on Monday night already we're slated to hear from Sarah Gideon, the State House Speaker in Maine, who is challenging Republican Senator Susan Collins. We're scheduled to hear from Senator Doug Jones of Alabama. He's the most vulnerable Democratic senator up for election this year. Both parties are going to be fighting tooth and nail to control the Senate, especially if Joe Biden continues to lead President Trump in the polls overall. That really turns up the heat on Republicans to try to maintain their Senate majority. And and so when you're looking at polling data coming in, I'd also be, especially in some of these swing states, I'd also be looking at those Senate races because that is going to be a key battle that come November, we're going to be watching very closely as the results come in. Stephen Shepard, politics editor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.